Scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put, in, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the evil darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, but every time Phil prays or reads anything, I kind of feel like I'm supposed to be paying for like a premium subscription or something. <laughs> um, I somehow feel like I'm like robbing Phil. I feel like uh, I owe some kind of like $10.99 a month subscription. Um, Phil, I'm telling you, you really need a podcast. <laughs> I will listen to you talk about literally anything. Uh, but... Uh, we are continuing this morning through uh, this little series uh, we've been doing together through Ephesians, <clears throat> and we find ourselves today at the end of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6, um, and we're actually skipping Ephesians 4 and 5 uh, because they don't matter. Uh, I'm just kidding. They're actually like super important, right? Uh, but for those of you who don't know, this is uh, my wife and I's last week here at Cornerstone. Um, so it felt appropriate to finish our time here uh, by finishing with Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul closes the epistle to the Ephesians with an exhortation to believers to put on the full armor of God and to engage in spiritual warfare because whether they know it or not, they have an enemy who is scheming against them and their enemy is not just flesh and blood but also the cosmic powers of darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. And I think that for many of us, this idea of spiritual warfare is, is a very difficult and, and tricky topic, right? I, I think on the one hand, uh, there are some of us who, when we hear the idea of spiritual warfare, we, we sort of roll our eyes because uh, it, it feels kind of silly and borderline superstitious, right? We sort of feel like, hey, like, haven't we as a collective human society evolved beyond this point? It sort of feels like the equivalent of like believing in like ghouls and goblins and fairies of some kind. Like, haven't we as a society moved past such primitive superstition? And, and if that's you, I, I'd like to suggest that you adopt a slightly more open-minded attitude, um, you know, nearly every single human civilization throughout the history of humanity has believed in something beyond the world that we can see and feel with our physical senses. 
that they have believed that there are forces in this world that affect us and affect our lives that are beyond our grasp, beyond our understanding, and yet have very real impact in our everyday lives. Sometimes it's called fate, sometimes it's called destiny, sometimes it's called spirits, but every human society throughout history has held to the conviction that there are forces at play in our universe that are beyond our understanding. So it would be unwise, maybe even arrogant, for us to so easily dismiss thousands of years of shared human conviction. For others of us, the idea of spiritual warfare can be really tricky because we may have grown up in environments that were overly spiritual. Like maybe your parents were overly spiritual. And if you grew up under first generation Korean parents, there's a good chance that your parents were overly spiritual. This was the case for me. For me growing up, uh, anything in my life that was even slightly negative or not good, my mom would directly attribute to the devil. Right. Um, so like one time uh, when I was doing ministry uh, in New York, I, I got sick because um, I had just finished a retreat and uh, I hadn't been sleeping and I hadn't been eating and I was just I was really tired and exhausted. So I ended up getting sick and I caught a cold. Also, my heater broke in my apartment and it was like New York winter. So it's like minus 10 in the morning. And so I caught a cold and I was talking to my mom and she's like, oh, how are you? You don't sound well. Something sounds like you're like something about your voice sounds off. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. I'm just sick. I have a cold. And she said, oh my gosh, you have a cold? And I was like, yeah. She goes, do you know why you have a cold? I'm like, yeah, it's because I'm not eating and you know, like I, I, I haven't slept much and my heater broke. She goes, no. It's because it's the devil, and you're not praying hard enough, and he's spiritually attacking you. You need to pray harder, right? And I was like, I was so annoyed by this, right? Because I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I'm just sick, right? Uh, and, but so what I did was I, I just logged this moment in my head, and I moved on from that conversation. But what happened was a couple months later, I was talking to my mom on the phone, and I was like, mom, what's wrong with your voice? You sound like you're sick, right? Because she was, and she said, oh, I have a cold. And I was like, nice. It's payback time, right? Because in, in my mind, this is the plan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the tables on this lady now, right? And I was like, oh, you have a cold? And she was like, yeah. I'm like, why do you have a cold? And she's like, I've just been working a lot, and I've been having a hard time sleeping, and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, do you know why you really have a cold? And she was like, what? And I was like, because of the devil. You're not praying hard enough. Right? And in my mind, this is, this is what I had thought would happen. I thought I would say that, and I thought my mom would get upset and be like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Of course not. Like, I'm just sick. Like, I just, have, I just haven't been sleeping well. I've been working too much. And, and how could you say that to me? And I would be like, exactly. So stop doing that to me. Right? This is what I thought would happen. So what I did was I said, do you know why you're really sick? She said, why? And I said, because of the devil. And then she said, mm, you're right. And I was like, dang it. I just reinforced this by accident, right? And so maybe you grew up in a household or environment where everything was overly spiritual, everything was spiritual warfare, and it's kind of left a bad taste in your mouth. Or maybe you went to a church that was too charismatic, where everything was overly spiritual. For those of you who grew up in the early 2000s in Nova, you might know the legend of a little tiny lady named Nan from our area who started what was essentially, what essentially became a cult at a church in this area. I'm very familiar with this incident because I was in that sort of 
kind of cult. And they did, we did all kinds of crazy stuff in the name of spiritual warfare, right? All kinds of crazy stuff happened. She eventually, like, left, went down to Richmond, started, like, a different cult and called it, like, Holy Fire or something like that. Look, just heads up, okay, just... If you ever move and you're looking for a church, if they ever have, like, stuff about fire or eschatology, like, oh, church of the end times or anything like that, you should be, you know, chances are something's, like, a little bit, like, uh, like, tread cautiously, okay? Normally, like, safe churches are, like, they're called, like, grace covenant, or they have, like, rock imagery of some kind, or, like, they're, like, oh, like, Christ always Presbyterian church or something like that, right? Those are safe names, okay? But if it has a name with like fire or brimstone or anything from Revelation, like chances are pretty good if you're a betting man, right? It's like the same rule for pho, right? All pho restaurants, if they're legit, they either are pho, some Vietnamese city or word, or pho and then a number but a multiple of five, okay? Like 75, 50, 95, but like a pho 20, that, that might be okay, but a FUD 31, stay away. Stay away, breaks the rules, right? But you might be like me. You may have grown up at a church or you might have been at a church where you saw a lot of weird, wild, terrible things happen in the name of spiritual warfare. And as such, you might have taken a hard 180 turn in the opposite direction and you want as little to do as humanly possible with things of that nature. You've just seen so much wrong being done with that that you'd rather not, uh, even though you haven't technically adopted the position of none of that, very functionally and practically you reject the idea of spiritual warfare uh, overall. And, And the problem with all of this is that if we're going to be serious about our faith as Christians, we have to seriously contend with the entire body and word of God, not just the parts of it that we naturally tend to agree or resonate with. And Paul warns us here in Ephesians 6 that we are at war against an enemy of a spiritual nature. And we're going to have a very difficult time fighting if we don't at least acknowledge that we are in a fight. And I think that for many of us, the idea of spiritual warfare is is, is difficult for us to grasp onto or or difficult for us to resonate with for, for all kinds of reasons. So before we go any further, uh, I'm not usually one to use like videos and media uh, when I'm preaching, but I, I found this one video. It's, um, it's a story of this guy uh, talking about how sort of he became a Christian and he put on the armor of God in order to resist the schemes of the devil. And um, it's kind of amazing, okay? Let me just say it's kind of amazing uh, for all kinds of reasons. So uh, media team, if we could play that very uh, quickly, um, and if somebody could get these lights, that would be wonderful. Um, it's okay, you can leave. Oh. Uh, like I said, amazing, right? Uh, on so many levels. My, my favorite part of that whole clip, I've, I've watched this like a million times. My favorite part of that clip is when he said, shoes of peace to stomp on the enemy. It's like, mm, I don't really think that's what the shoes of peace are supposed to be, uh, to be used for. But I, I have actually watched this video so many times, and I've spent uh, way more time thinking about this video um, than, I, than I really should have, because there's just something about it that I just... It keeps pulling me back in. I just watch it again and again and again. And of course, it's, it's I mean, it's amazing, right? I mean, it's, it's delightful. It's amusing. It's hilarious in a lot of ways. But if I'm honest, there is something in the video that I find uh, 
pretty, pretty convicting for me. Um, I think for me, it reminds me of a time when, when my faith was a, a little bolder, um, where I was more easily able to accept ridicule or, or maybe even laughter for other people for um, the times when maybe my passion outweighed my, my restraint. Um, and, you know, I, I think as I've gotten older, I think I've, I've gained greater restraint, which is good, but I think that at times it, 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 it has been bad. So I think for me, I, I find it personally very convicting, um, as amazing as it is. So uh, don't be surprised if after this week you see me pop and locking at some church somewhere, okay? Um, I wish I could do it for you today. I think the scripture reading would have been way more amazing. Uh, unfortunately, I am not a good dancer. Um, so I'll need some time to practice. But I actually think this video also demonstrates how this passage is often used to, to hype up certain parts of the Bible. I want to acknowledge that passages like this one can be really difficult because they're used in all kinds of ways, and really oftentimes they're, they're really distorted or sometimes even abused uh, in the Christian church, and that can make it hard for us to um, take this passage seriously because we come into it with our own set of sort of personal biases and predilections. So I want to take some time today together to sort of try to untangle our own personal conceptions or, or perceptions of what this passage is saying uh, and our ideas of what spiritual warfare entails and try to see what the word of God, in particular Ephesians 6, is actually talking about. Uh, but before we do that, we actually need to, we do need to actually briefly recap the stuff that we skipped in Ephesians 4 through 5 because uh, this section of Ephesians that we're talking about here, chapter 6, verse 10, it's actually the conclusion of a thought that the Apostle Paul starts in Ephesians 4.1. Okay, so we're going to move through this passage together, um, and I want to do it in three steps together, okay? The first step I want us to take is, what did we miss? The second step is, why do we need the armor of God? And third is, where do we find victory? Okay, so what do we miss? Why do we need the armor of God? And where do we find the victory? Okay, so in Ephesians 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul lays down a theological foundation for everything he's going to say from after chapter 2, okay? He, he reminds Christians and the people of Ephesus, he says, listen, you were, you were bought by Jesus Christ, right? And you were, you were purchased at a price. And, and God sent Jesus, and he died for your sins, but the power of God worked in him. He raised him up from the dead, ascended him into heaven, and now Jesus is there, and he has dominion and authority over all things. He is above all things. He is in all things. He has full dominion, and he gives that as an inheritance to you, his people, who are his workmanship, who have been united to him in his body, Right? And so he builds this sort of this gospel foundation and says, you are the workmanship of God. And that's what everything that Ephesians 1 through 2 is about. And then in Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul kind of uses that as sort of a transitionary point for what he's about to do in Ephesians 4 through 6. In Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul basically reminds uh, the church of Ephesus of who he is. He says, listen, you, you, you know who I am. You know what I've been through. You know that I've been an ambassador for Christ, that I've been in chains. You know that the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to me. And he's, he's essentially building up the credibility for what it is that he's about to say. Because here's the thing, right? Ephesians 1 through 2 is the Apostle Paul describing how people become a Christian and what the gospel is. In essence, Ephesians 1 through 2 is about how a Christian is born. But starting in Ephesians 4, he begins to describe not how Christians are born, but rather how Christians are called to live. Not how do you become a Christian, but how are you supposed to live as a Christian now that you've become one? In Ephesians 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what does this living 
uh, worthy of the calling to which we have been called look like? And that's what 4 through 5 is about. In 4 through 5, the Apostle Paul says that we ought to have unity in the body and to be growing in maturity, that we ought to be united by a mutual pursuit and desire to grow in Christ-likeness and godliness. He tells us that we're supposed to put off the old self because it has corrupt desires and to take on the new self and to be renewed in mind and spirit. He tells us to put away every falsehood and speak truth to our neighbor, <clears throat> to be angry, but don't sin when you're angry. And in fact, if you are angry, he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He says, don't steal, work hard, and let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. He says, let there be no bitterness or slander among you. Be kind and tenderhearted. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Don't hold on to past grudges or past mistakes. And that's just chapter four. In chapter five, he says, walk as imitators of God, walking in light, not in darkness. He says, put away all impurity, all sexual immorality, all covetousness. He says, put away all crude joking and foolish talk and replace it with thanksgiving. He says, walk as children of the light, not as children of darkness, and try to discern the things that would be pleasing to God. Use your time wisely because the day is evil and don't be, don't be drunk, but instead be filled with the spirit addressing one another with spiritual songs and hymns and giving thanks always to God. And then he says, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gives himself up for her. And then in the beginning of Ephesians 6, he says, children, honor your parents. And parents, do not provoke your children to anger. Then he says, bondservants, work hard for your masters, not as people pleasers, but as people who are bondservants of Christ, who are eager to please not their masters, but to work for your masters and be eager to please them as though you were working for Jesus Christ himself. And if you do work, don't work with the begrudging or lazy heart, but rather with the heart of sincerity and eagerness, because ultimately all the work you do is for Christ and God who is over all. Ephesians 4 all the way through to the beginning of Ephesians 6 is about the ethical code in life that Christians are supposed to live. That if you're a Christian and you've been saved by grace and you are the workmanship of God, that this is the life that you're supposed to be striving and working to live every single day. To live in peace with one another, encouraging one another, putting away all impurity and immorality and unproductive and unfruitful words. To forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. To have a shared mutual affection for one another, not on the grounds of shared hobbies or shared interests or shared history, but a shared affection for Christ. To be godly spouses and good parents and good workers and to work in such a way that it honors and reflects the glory of the salvation that you've been given. To put off the old self and embrace the new and it's after describing all these things and this new ethical code that Christians are supposed to live by that we find ourselves here in verse 10 through 24. And he talks about the armor of God. So why do we need the armor of God? Because we are at war. In Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10, the apostle Paul says, listen, there is an enemy and they are actively working and fighting and scheming to keep you from living the kind of life that you're supposed to be living that was just described starting from chapter 4, verse 1. He's saying, listen, the old self with its old corrupt desires, it doesn't just go away magically. It has to be fought. It has to be wrestled against because there is an enemy that is doing everything they can to keep you as your old self. And here's the thing, this passage, it often gets sliced and diced. 
right? A lot of times what happens is people talk about, well, what is the breastplate of righteousness? And what is the helmet of salvation? What is the sword of the spirit? And what is the shield of faith? And sometimes we, we, we get so caught up in that, we lose sight of why God is telling us we need all that stuff to begin with. And those things are important. And if we had the time, we would talk about them. But it's important that we don't lose sight that we get, it's important that we don't get so focused on what the armor is that we forget about why we need the armor to begin with. See, Paul's not telling us, put on this armor so that you can wrestle against demons and go be victorious. No, he's saying you need to put on this armor not so that you can start some amazing exorcism ministry, but so that you can resist the schemes of the enemy. You see, the question before us this morning is not what is the breastplate of righteousness, even though that is a worthy and important question. The question before us this morning, and the one that I would like for us to consider together is, are you wrestling for holiness? Because Paul is telling us that there is no neutral ground for a Christian. There is no such thing as a neutrality when you are attacked by an enemy in war. You have been pulled into the conflict. So you are either either actively working and wrestling against the schemes of the enemy or you are falling victim to it. And that's why you need the armor of God. Because here's the thing, I, I think if we're honest, I think for a lot of us, we don't take personal holiness as seriously as we should. I think it's fair to say that for a lot of us, uh, when we think of holiness, we think of it as something that... Uh, it's good to have, it's good to desire, it's good to strive after. It's something certainly God is, but it's not something that we're actively wrestling and praying for. I think that most of the time, we spend our time and energy wrestling and praying not for our personal holiness, but rather our personal circumstances. What I mean is this, right? Uh, we spend a lot of time asking God to remove certain obstacles or people, or frustrations, or situations from our lives. We ask God to deliver us from difficult times, or difficult people, or difficult things, when what we're supposed to be doing is asking God to help us be the kind of people who find holiness in the midst of difficult times, and difficult people, and difficult things. How often have you prayed to be brought out of a situation, or for a thing to end, as compared to, be, as compared to praying to be holy and edified while in the midst of the situation? And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with praying to be rescued out of a situation. There is nothing wrong with saying, God, I would really rather not be here. I would really rather not be going through this. How do we know there's nothing wrong with it? Because Jesus does it at Gethsemane. If it is possible, take this cup from me. There is nothing wrong with a prayer to be delivered out of a situation. The problem arises when that becomes our only prayer. How seriously do we take the things that we see the Apostle Paul talk about in Ephesians 4 through 5? How seriously do we take the idea of a unity of believers, united by the bonds of the blood of Christ? Look, I, I love this church. I've been a part of this church since like 2010, and I have grown up in Nova since I immigrated here from Korea when I was like three People always ask me, like, are you first generation or second generation? And I say I'm like 1.9 because I'm like technically first generation, but not really, right? 
And there is a lot of wonderful, amazing things about both Nova and Cornerstone, but there are also some really weird things about living here that you just kind of accept as being normal when you live here for long enough, but it's not normal. And look, what I'm about to say is true anywhere, okay? I, I, I want to start that. It's, it's, unique. it's not unique to Nova. It's not unique to Cornerstone. Uh, and there are certainly other churches where it's a little more extreme. For example, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to say it. But I will say that Nova is a little more intense and a little more extreme in this than other places, okay? <clears throat> uh, Nova in general, and Cornerstone as well, is super clicky, okay? And, and clicks exist anywhere, but Nova is especially clicky. And a majority of the time, those clicks are based on where did you go to school? Tech people hang out with tech people, VCU people hang out with VCU people, and JMU people hang out with JMU people, and no one likes people from UVA. This is even more true, doubly true, especially true if you were involved in servants ministry. And if you went to Mason, you probably don't hang out with too many people unless you're a fob. Then you're a part of some kind of fob community and you sort of have like your own separate sort of circle. The friend circle that you had in college is the friend circle that you keep for pretty much the rest of your life here in Nova. And usually the only new people in your friend circle were brought in through marriage or dating, right? Like you had a friend who went to JMU who's in your friend circle, and then they married someone from Maryland or Pennsylvania or Delaware or somewhere else, and they got brought into the friend circle that way. And so now you just have a bunch of like UVA people and then like a couple like random out-of-staters who are a part of that circle. Or your friend's circle are the people that you grew up with. You went to the same youth group, the same high school, the same whatever. And look, there is nothing wrong with having the same friends for a long time. Okay, there, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's a lot of things that are really great about that. But the problem becomes when that friend circle becomes an obstacle to reaching out to and connecting with new and different people in the church. Is your friend circle marked by a shared affection for Christ and a desire to grow in holiness together? Or is it marked by a shared history of life circumstances, hobbies, or geographic locations of your colleges? And to some degree, again, this exists everywhere, but I will say it is more intense in Nova. I have personally experienced it. I know because when I moved away and then I moved back, I would meet all these people and everyone just assumes that I'm not from Nova. Like people would meet me and they'd be like, oh, like, hey man, what's your name? I'm like, oh, hey, like my name is David. They're like, oh, David, like welcome. Like, you know, like, where did you go to school, David? I'm like, oh, I went to GMU. And they go, oh, I'm not sure I'm familiar with that school. I'm like, no, it's George Mason. They're like, oh, you went to school in Virginia. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, and they're like, oh, okay, like, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from Virginia. They're like, no, 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 like, where are you originally from? I'm like, dude, you're Korean like me. Why are you asking me this question? And then I'm like, dude, no, I grew up here. And, and they don't believe me. Like, people don't believe me. They're like, oh, where did you go to high school? And then I'm like, oh, I went to West Springfield. They're like, West Springfield, did you know a, do you know a Stephen Kim or a John Kim or a Grace Kim or, you know, any other generic Korean Christian name, right? Because they, they don't believe that I'm here. Because in their minds, it is so difficult to fathom that there is somebody who could have grown up in Nova, gone to college here, yet not been plugged in with servants ministry or any of the friend circles that they know. And again, cliques exist everywhere, but it is really strong here. The Apostle Paul tells us to put away all falsehood, bitterness, and slander, 
but instead to be filled with thanksgiving and praise. And it is fascinating to me how difficult this is for us. And yes, when I say us, I do mean us. Like, this is something that's difficult for me too. It is so fascinating to me how strongly we can form an opinion on people that we've never actually spoken with or spent any reasonable amount of time with. But because our friend or our friend's friend told us that they heard that that person is like, oh, a player, or they're rude, or they're not nice, or they led, or they led some guy on, we become convinced that that's who they are. And we get so convinced, we tell other people that's what we heard. We go, oh, hey, I heard that that person is a player, or that person leads people on. But it's okay, because we preface it by saying, hey, I didn't hear this personally, or I'm not trying to gossip or anything, but yo, here's this bit of gossip that I heard. And we, we allow it to shape our opinion of them. We watch them from afar and we say, yep, I see it, that person is mean. Yep, I see it, that person does lead people on. Yep, I see it, that person is stubborn or selfish or whatever it is that we heard about them. And we become convinced and we form such a strong opinion without ever having really spent any time with them. Or we ask ourselves, or maybe even tell other people, this is, this is more to the guys, right? And this is common in Christian subculture. Uh, you hear things like, oh, you know, um, yeah, we're just struggling because my wife is having a hard time submitting. Or you hear other people say it to other people, they're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, like, his wife's just having a hard time submitting to his headship. Completely losing sight of the fact that the word of God would not say, oh, well, dude, that's cool, I understand. No, the word of God would say, hey, instead of worrying so much about whether or not your wife is submitting well, why don't you ask yourself whether or not you're dying well for your wife? I have been to enough weddings at Cornerstone to know that alcohol and the abuse of it is a very real problem in our church. I have been to enough weddings and seen enough people where I know that this is not a foreign problem when Paul says, do not be drunk. I've spoken with enough of our members to know that sexual purity is a real and genuine problem at our church. And I have seen enough people upset with one another to know that reconciliation and forgiveness is a hard thing, that when someone wrongs us or upsets us, what we do is we go and talk to everyone about it except the person who did it. We tell everyone, like, oh, yeah, this person, like, oh, she led me on, and yeah, she led me on, and she led me on, and she led me on, and she just used me, and all this kind of stuff. And we'll talk to every single person about it except that person. And even then, instead of getting over it, we just hold on to it. We just hold on to that thing they did or that thing they said. And everything they do now, we look at it through that lens. It reminds us of that time that they did that thing or said that thing. And we can't see anything that that they do as good. And the Apostle Paul is telling us that we have an enemy that is working to keep us this way, to minimize our own problems and struggles and shortcomings, and maybe even minimize the problems of our friends. But on the other hand, maximize the problems, struggles, and shortcomings of others, especially those who we feel like have wronged us. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 9, the Apostle Paul says that we ought to work for our masters, also our bosses and employers, with the same sincerity and joy that we would work with Christ. So do you? Or do you grumble about the work you have, the place you work, how terrible and unfulfilling your job is, how incompetent and unnecessary your manager or assistant manager is? 
And listen, it might be true. All of that could be true. You might need, really need to move companies. You might really need to change jobs. Your assistant manager really might be horribly incompetent. And yet the word of God would say that for as long as you are working there, you ought to work with the joy and sincerity as if you were working for Jesus Christ himself. And maybe none of this is new to you. Maybe none of this is news to you. But the question this morning is, how seriously do you take your holiness? Are you burdened by it? Does it weigh on you? Does the fact that you don't have the right attitude when you go to work, or the fact that you don't exhibit great unity in the body, or that you don't have a pure tongue or a generous spirit, does it weigh on you? Does the fact that you've allowed not just one son, but many sons to go down on your anger, does that burden your spirit at all? And bear in mind, the Apostle Paul is not saying, hey, listen, you need to take your holiness seriously because then God will love you. Because that's not true. He is saying that because God loves you, take your holiness seriously. Because God has already loved you. Live your life with the commitment to holiness, befitting of the love that you have received from him. Are you fighting to be a more pure person, a more generous person, a person whose relationships are more characterized by an affection for Christ? Are you fighting to be a less bitter person, a more forgiving person, a better spouse, a better parent, a better employee? Because the Apostle Paul tells us that you have an enemy who is scheming and wrestling with you to convince you that actually it's our spouses who need to be better or our children who need to be better, or our bosses, or our jobs, or our companies that need to be better, that it is others who need to be more understanding, or more outgoing, or more apologetic, that it is their fault. And let me be really clear, okay? If that's you, if you're like in the camp of like, no, it's everybody else's fault, I'm not saying you're like demon-possessed, okay? That's not what I'm saying. Don't take it like that. What I am saying is I'm, that you have an enemy who wants you to believe that and to keep on believing that, that ultimately the problem with our holiness is others, not ourselves, that actually our problem isn't really that bad. I mean, it's not like we get drunk every night. It's just sometimes, at weddings, at parties, at New Year's. What's the big deal? The point I'm trying to make is that there is a problem in our holiness. And the reason why the Apostle Paul tells us to don the armor of God is he is reminding us that there is an enemy who is fighting to keep us from embracing and living in the freedom of this new life that Christ has won for us. That there is an enemy fighting to take away as much of that new life that Christ won for you away from you. And if all of this sounds difficult or frustrating or impossible, it should. How do you change? How do we become more generous? How do we magically become less bitter people, more forgiving people? How do we suddenly find joy in a job that feels like it's crushing our soul every time we go into work? That brings us to our third step. Where do we find victory in the midst of this spiritual warfare? Okay, I recognize that everything we're talking about here, it is not easy. The pursuit of holiness is difficult emotionally, mentally, and even intellectually. But I also know that the temptation is that after this, it's to internally in your heart be like, you know what? 
I'm gonna be a less bitter person. I'm gonna be a more forgiving person. I'm gonna like not talk to anyone from my college. I'm only gonna talk to people from UVA now. But the truth is we've tried this before. The history of our spiritual lives is littered with all the times that we have on our own effort and our own strength and our own plans tried to become better and holier people. So how do we find victory then? What I want you to notice with me in this passage is that the Apostle Paul, very interestingly, he doesn't say what we think he should say. You see, we, we read this subtext into the passage because it's been so ingrained into us. You see, here's what he doesn't say. The Apostle Paul does not say, go put on the armor of God, arm yourself with the sword of the Spirit, and go crush the enemy in his schemes. That's not what he says. He says something that is unexpected and goes against what we think he would say. He says, put on the armor of God, Don the shield of faith, arm yourself with the sword of the spirit, put on the breastplate of righteousness, and persevere. He doesn't call us to win, he calls us to endure. The apostle Paul tells us to pray and to persevere in this war. He doesn't tell us to go fight and win. Why? Well, he told us in Ephesians 1, because Jesus has already won the victory. In Ephesians 1, we're told that Christ has been put over all things, far above all rule and all dominion and every principality, and that all things are under his feet. We are not fighting a war in order to achieve victory. The victory has already been won. Christ is already the victor. He stands in dominion over all things, and so he tells us not to win, but to hold on. Because one day the full fruits of his victory will be brought to bear and we will enjoy the full benefits and the freedom that his victory brings. He will one day deliver us from this body of death, fully putting away our old selves and truly making us children of light. So persevere. What does this mean for us? Does this mean we don't need to try for holiness anymore? We just gotta wait until Jesus finishes the job? No, perseverance is not an act of passivity. It requires focus and determination and strength and will. And if you think perseverance is a passive activity, try holding a plank. But it does mean that you don't have to figure out the roadmap to holiness 100%. This war is not won by you figuring out the path to victory. It is won by you taking whatever meaningful steps that you can see in front of you right now that are in the correct direction. You see, you don't need to figure out right now how you're gonna become the perfect parent or the perfect spouse or the perfect child or the perfect employee. You don't need to figure out right now how you're gonna be able to work your nine to five for the rest of your life with the same joy and sincerity as if you were working for Christ himself. You don't need to figure out masterfully right now what the exact line is between an okay amount of alcohol and a wrong amount of alcohol or the difference between drinking, being buzzed, and being drunk or how you're suddenly going to gossip, uh, conquer decades of bitterness or gossip or selfishness. You just need to take the next meaningful step in the direction of holiness that you're capable of taking right now where you are. Maybe you can try to complain just a little bit less about work. 
Or maybe you can try reaching out and talking to just three new people who you've seen every week at church but you haven't spoken to. Or maybe you can just try giving just 10 additional dollars to whatever you're already giving in your tithe. And I don't say that for my benefit. This is my last week, okay? That money's not going to me. Okay, I don't care how you tithe. But what we find is as we take these small and meaningful steps, one by one, what we find is that they were leading us down a road to deeper holiness that the Lord had seen for us the whole time. We will find that one day we will really truly have a deeper wisdom towards alcohol, a different attitude towards our children in our work than we had before. And even though all we thought we were doing was moving one step, we will find that the Lord had actually been leading us down an entire journey. You see, God is not calling you out of the struggle, but he is calling you into the fight. So as you take whatever small and meaningful step that you can, whatever you're capable of today, the Apostle Paul urges you to persevere and to pray because holiness and perseverance is hard. The work of holiness is often uncelebrated, unacknowledged, unappreciated, and tiring. Combine that with all the other things in your life that are unappreciated, unacknowledged, uncelebrated, and tiring. And sooner or later, you're going to run out of steam. So the Apostle Paul says, pray at all times in the Spirit because you cannot do this yourself. He urges you to be alert to whatever new temptations may arise and to continually pray for the strength and the wisdom to continue taking that next step. Because when we pray, we are acknowledging that we cannot do this work of holiness ourselves, that we need the other saints of God that are in the body of Christ around us, and we need the strength and power of God to be in us, or we will falter and fail in this journey towards holiness. But even if we do fail, take heart. There is a victory coming for us. So take heart because God is moving and working. So hold on. It has been such a privilege to serve such a wonderful body of Christ as this one. Thank you for letting me lead you in worship week after week. The sounds of your voices singing has always been such a sweet healing for me after a long week. Thank you for all your prayers and support for me through my journey as a single bachelor, now finally a married man, praise the Lord. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of your lives, to walk with you in your weddings, the births of your children, to walk with you through your illnesses, through your struggles, it has been such a unique privilege and blessing to serve you. I hope that you will continue to pray for me and my wife as we too fight to persevere in this war and battle for holiness and faithfulness. We will continue to be praying for you. And so in closing, let me close by echoing the words of the Apostle Paul as he finishes this epistle. May grace and peace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I want you to pray with me.
Gracious God, we are so thankful for the faithfulness that you showed to us and that you continually demonstrate in our lives time after time, week after week, and day after day. And so, Lord, we pray that at this time, God, won't you fill us up with your spirit and reignite in us a deeper commitment and passion to grow in this holiness that you have called us to. We confess that, God, there is an enemy, and he is more wily than we are, and he is stronger than we are, and he is smarter than we are, and he is trying to keep us in our old, corrupt selves with its old desires. But we pray that, God, you would equip us to resist and to endure and to move in the direction and the next step that you are calling us to until that day comes and we shall finally and fully be brought home and delivered. We're so thankful for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.